Good morning, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to uh, Christ Community, and uh, also the Leewood campus. And uh, I think I forgot first service to uh, wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving, so don't let me forget that. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And uh, college students, great to have you back as well. I hope you're studying hard and being brilliant. Well, the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, you been there? <laughs> well, you and 40 million other people, according to my research lately. Um, it surprises me, actually, that the top tourist site is not Magic Kingdom at Disney World. There's 17 million that go there a year. Did you know that the Mall of America, since it opened in 1992, has had over 600 million visitors? You can add two to that because, well, 600 million and two, because Liz and I found ourselves at the Mall of America recently. We didn't just go there for that reason I was speaking, but our hotel was right connected. I mean, it was literally connected to the Mall of America. So what are we to do? Walk through the Mall of America. It was amazing. Um, I don't know if you've hung out there recently, but when I was, I was reminded of the goodness of the Mall of America in many ways. There, there are many things, good things available to you there. And yes, the Mall of America provides lots of good jobs for lots of people. But I was also reminded as I strolled through this place, and it's hard not to get lost there, right? I mean, whew, I didn't get lost totally. But it's easy to lose perspective, is it not? As you walk through this amazing place, about keeping the proper place of stuff in our lives. Because it sort of overwhelms you. When you walk through a mall like the Mall of America, at least for me, it's easy to begin to think that the path to happiness is paved with accumulating more and more stuff. Am I the only one that thinks that way? <laughs> that somehow when I walk through the Mall of America or Oak Park Mall or wherever it is, that I begin to sort of, almost by osmosis, seem to think that the meaning of life it's really about getting things rather than giving things. Now, as I walk through the Mall of America, and again, I didn't get lost, which was a miracle, because Liz was with me, she helped me. But I thought to myself, and I have lots of demented thoughts, so if you're newer here, you just, you know, gotta just hang in there with me. I had this thought, I really did. I'm not just being a pastor here, an embellishment. I had this thought, what if there was a store in this massive mall, not devoted to getting things, but devoted to giving things. What if at the Mall of America, next to the awesome Apple store, there was an awesome generosity store? Hmm. Now, I don't expect the Mall of America to have a generosity store anytime soon. But in a Black Friday world, a generosity store would help me be more regularly reminded in my pilgrimage to the mall <laughs> to revisit an important question. And that question is this. Is life ultimately more about what we get or about what we give? I find it fascinating intriguing and quite brilliant 
Then in his book, The Paradox of Generosity, Christian Smith, who is an outstanding sociologist at Notre Dame, put it this way. This is what he says. Oh, we disappeared on the site. <laughs> By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not just only a philosophical or religious teaching. It is a sociological fact. Christian Smith points out in empirical research that people who practice generosity are just more happy. He lists several things. They have more happiness, better health. They have more purpose in living. They avoid depression more. And they have interest in their own personal growth. How about that? And what Christian Smith is finding is true of all of our lives, isn't it? But Christmas is around the corner. Kids, I know you are looking forward to getting those awesome presents. And presents are good, good things. But maybe you heard the words of our Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you kind of went, huh. Well, let me let you in on a secret, kids. You're not alone. Many of us hearing Jesus' words as adults, it's hard for us to believe that too. Because we all struggle with generosity and living generous lives. I do. And what stands out to me is how Christian Smith's research echoes what the Bible teaches. When we look at the Scriptures, we hear Christian Smith's research. That you and I were created with a a sense of generosity in mind. A generous God wants us to be generous. He created us that way. A generosity that unleashes great joy in our lives and, yes, empowers neighborly love. Now, this morning, if you've been with us, you know that we are coming to the conclusion of our Neighborly Love series. The last few weeks, we have been probing this question, how do we love our neighbor? In our first message, we looked at Jesus' foundational teaching in Luke chapter 10 of the Great Commandment to love God and our neighbor. And we learned that loving our neighbor not only involves having compassion, but also economic capacity. That neighborly love means both compassion and capacity. And then in our subsequent messages, we pressed more fully into that. We discovered from the book of Genesis that God created us with work in mind, each of us, that we were created to be fruitful and productive. And it is in our fruitfulness and productivity that we have the capacity to love our neighbors. We also learned in this series that it's not just loving our individual neighbor, we are to love the neighborhood too, because we were created with community in mind. And in community, with one another, we add value to others in and through the work we do every day. Whether that work is paid or non-paid, it's all our contribution. See, the productivity of our work, our contribution to God and our neighbor is lived out in an economic context, and it calls us to cooperate and collaborate with others, neighbors near and far. It is truly stunning when we study human history and economics that in today's global modern economy, never before in human history have we seen neighborly love expressed so brilliantly 
in the extensive cooperation and collaboration of many neighbors we will never meet. So, loving our neighbor is deeply embedded in economic life. From Proverbs, we also learned in our series the importance of moral virtue and diligence in our work. And from the Old Testament prophet Amos, we were reminded of a challenging but necessary reminder of the grave sin of economic injustice and the need to care for the vulnerable. So this morning, we come to the crescendo of our series in Neighborly Love, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's words through the lens of St. Luke, the physician who traveled with him, and we are going to see the capstone of this series that neighborly love is a generous love. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 20 in the New Testament. As we enter into there, let's set the context. It is a narrative. In fact, this section of the book of Acts, if you have your Bible open, electronic or paper, encourage you to follow along, that we begin to read it as a travel diary. That's what it seems like. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And instead of going on the longer route over modern-day Turkey, Paul gets in a boat and sails east toward Jerusalem in the Mediterranean. On the way, he stops at a port of call called Miletus. They're going to spend several days there. They're unpacking cargo and picking up cargo. It's a cargo ship. So the Apostle Paul sends a message to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the local church at Ephesus, and the local church leaders drop everything they're doing, and they travel, get this, 30 miles to see the Apostle Paul. So here we are, beginning in verse 18, and Luke, who writes some of the finest Greek in the New Testament, in the most brilliant, flashing literary form, allows us to enter into this intimate conversation that Paul has with the church leaders at Ephesus. Now notice beginning with verse 18. What surprises us here is not the tone of the conversation, but the emotional ambush that takes place. Paul, seemingly out of the blue, says to his friends and leaders in verse 25, hey, this is the last time together. You're not going to see my face again. Can you imagine what you would feel at that moment? There was a, a cloudy sense of seriousness and sobriety that hovered over their hearts as they listened to the Apostle Paul. Everyone was on point. Their hearts, their feelings were in their throat of sorrow. In that culture and in our culture, it is profoundly true that people's last words bear heavy weight, correct? And so, what was most on Paul's mind as the last word of the local church at Ephesus? What did he believe was most important to tell them? This is important for us to grasp in context. In verse 31, you'll notice the strong language that Paul says to them with a megaphone, literally, be on the alert or watch out. But the question is to watch out for what? What is most concerning to Paul to the church at Ephesus? There are two things in context. First, the danger of false doctrine. 
And again, that's a common refrain of the Apostle Paul. But what surprises us is what's second on Paul's mind. What's second on Paul's mind is the urgency and the need for abundant generosity. And here in verse 33 to 36, Paul reveals three timeless truths about generosity directed toward the church. And these are the three, and this is the structure of the text. Paul will say, first, watch your heart. Secondly, work hard. And third, live generously. So let's enter into the text. First, watch your heart. Notice verse 33. Paul says, I coveted, or we might say yearned for, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Does this seem strange? Does it seem strange that Paul would address yearning or coveting for wealth before he even talks about being generous with wealth? But Paul knew something from the Old Testament, and he knew something from his own sinful heart, and that is this. That the greatest threat to living generously is a heart problem, not a money problem. See, coveting wealth is, or anything for that matter, is yearning for more and more and more and more. And especially when someone near us has more, we perceive, coveting is fanned into flame. Now, whether it's, it's a more extensive Lego set... Or a cooler cell phone somebody has, the latest Apple product, like an Apple Watch, a limitless limitless allowance or a bank account, all of that can fan the flames of coveting. I was struck this week in the Wall Street Journal, there's this big advertisement, maybe you've seen this, with these big letters. And it reads this, whoever said less is more, comma, never tried more. (laughs) And isn't that much of our cultural context today? And Paul knew that a generous heart and a coveting heart could, excuse me, not coexist. See, if we are going to embrace generosity, then we need to be on full alert And watch our hearts for coveting, for greed, for anything else that turns the goodness of money and wealth into a heart-suffocating idol that enthrones self as the ultimate and not God. It's important to understand that underlying the idol of money is really a root idol of self in many cases. That is, a life revolving around ourself, living as if God is of no significance or consequence to us. Brilliant Jesus makes this point in powerful ways in a parable in Luke chapter 12. We often call it the parable of a rich fool, but it could also be the parable of a poor fool too. The point is not how much, the point is who's on the throne of this person's life. The story is of a wealthy landowner who has amazing crops, and he has such an abundance he can't fit it into his barns. So he tears down the barns, build bigger barns, and the point of the parable is not the amount he has. The point of the parable is what he does with it. He sits back, neglecting his neighbor 
of no consequence to him, of no consequence as God. He could care less. He is indulgent, and his world revolves around himself. That's the point. The God who he dismisses <laughs> decides it's time to show up. And he says to him, let me just use a little bit of creative uh, paraphrase. He says, dude, your time's up. You're out of here. And he says a word that's very important. He says, you fool. Now, contextually, the Bible says fool is someone, it's not about their intelligence. A fool is someone who lives life, life as if God does not exist or that his neighbor does not matter. I find it fascinating that one of the most outspoken atheists, who I disagree on so many fronts, is Princeton University professor Peter Singer. He's one of the most outspoken atheists, and he speaks, isn't it fascinating, about the emptiness of living for our own self. Here's what he says. In a book called The Expanding Circle, notice what he says. The pursuit, this is Singer. The pursuit of self-interest, as standardly conceived, is a life without any meaning beyond our own pleasure or individual satisfaction. Now, notice what Singer says. Such a life is often a self-defeating enterprise. Now, I want you to notice how Luke arranges his gospel. Do not miss this. It is not incidental that the parable of the rich fool in 12, chapter 12, follows right on the heels of the parable of the generous Samaritan we began this series with in Luke 10. Luke does not want us to miss the contrast of the two. Now, remember, parables not only teach us truth, they invite us to see ourselves in the story. Notice how Luke ends this. Jesus' words, the words here in verse 21, so is the one, in Luke 12, so is the one, what? The one person, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When it comes to money and wealth, the question that the text wants us to ask is what is your, what is my heart telling you this morning? Is your heart filled this morning with yearning, with envy, with discontentment? Think with me. Or is it filled with generosity, contentment, satisfaction, and happiness? Do you feel like as you look at your life that you got the short end of the stick? Are you resenting others who have more gifts or talents or financial capacity? You know, these days I'm hearing both in the academy and in the broader culture the word privilege. I'm hearing it a lot. Now, while this word can rightly point out the inequality of economic opportunity in our time, let's also be honest. It can also conceal a coveting resentment of others and their gifts and talents and wealth. See, all of us can yearn for money for different reasons. There's a host of them. 
We think money brings us comfort, security, power. It gives us prestige. It gives us approval of others, control of things. Remember Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, what we treasure, our hearts will follow, not the other way around. If we get our treasure right, our heart follows. Let me ask you, as I ask myself, what do you truly treasure in life? What is your checkbook saying? What is your financial portfolio saying? Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, said it so brilliant that the gospel brings two conversions. The gospel, a conversion of the heart and a conversion of the purse. See, it's really not how much we have. It is how much of what we have has us. Albert Schweitzer, who gave so much of his wealth away in service for humanity, said this, if you own something you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. When we embrace a lifestyle of joyful generosity in all dimensions of human existence, it releases the suffocating grip of coveting whether that's power or talent or money from our hearts. I love how the Apostle Paul paints such a balanced and beautiful picture of the right heart when it comes to money and wealth. And I have the strongest of hunches, based on the structure of the language and so forth, that Paul had Jesus' parable of the rich fool in mind when he writes these words to Pastor Timothy, who is serving in the church at Ephesus. Listen to Paul's words. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Notice, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul paints here is the life God has for all of us in Christ. Notice it is a life of intimate relationships with God first and with others. It's a life of true humility, of grateful enjoyment of God's gifts, of joyful generosity to others. This is the life we were created to live. This is the life our hearts long for. And if we're going to love our neighbors well, Paul says, first, watch your heart. But notice he also says, work hard. Look at verses 34 and 35. He writes, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to all those who were with me. In all things... I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and notice the emphatic nature, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now let's set the context. We know from the book of Acts that Paul lived in Ephesus for three years. 
And while he was in Ephesus for three years, he established a local church there. He also practiced the trade he had learned in making tents. I can't make anything with my hands. But I know it, it was hard work. And in verses 34 and 35, he says, I set an example as a Christian leader to those in the church of the importance of working hard. Paul emphatically emphasizes this in the text. It's emphatic. There was no Sunday to Monday gap between work and worship in Paul's thinking. Paul saw a seamless vocational faithfulness of making good tents and making Christ-like disciples all at one as an act of worship. And notice, if you would, that Paul explicitly, he highlights this, he amplifies this of his own hard work. And notice its logical connection that his hard work making tents created the economic capacity to meet his needs. But notice what the text says. That allowed him to be generous so he could meet other needs as well. Paul is a hopeful realist when it comes to work. And the verse he employs in verse 35 describes the fatigue and aching body. I mean, I've never done tents before, but can you imagine doing that? Your eyes, your hands, how tired you would be and dealing with difficult customers. He understood Genesis 3. It was thorns and thistles, baby. He knew it. There's no complaining. There's realism. Work is hard. And work really matters. I read some research not too long ago, and I don't know how this is well validated, so you might take this with a grain of salt. It's empirical validation was sort of skeptical to me, so I thought, well, I, but I'll give you just a thought. It might be apocryphal, but it has an idea. In the research that they had done, Again, I don't know the sample size and all that, but they said that 40% of most people's jobs, people don't like. 40% of your job just bums you out. Now, I'm not saying that as a pastor that 40% of our parishioners bum me out. So don't you know that. <laughs> In case you are going there. But all work has that 40%, 50%, 60%, you might say 80%. I don't think Paul loved doing tents all the time. Paul is emphatic here. Last words of Paul to the Ephesians. Don't miss that. So how are you embracing the work God has called you to do? Whether that work is paid or not paid. All work brings with it toil, exhaustion, and frustration. Does it not? See, our everyday work is where God has called us to spend a large amount of our time. He wants our work to be a place of worship a place of spiritual formation, a platform for living out the gospel and a platform for sharing the gospel with those we work and serve with. Let me ask you a question. Still with me? How effective do you think Paul's evangelism would have been in Ephesus if he had not made good tents? Our good work makes our good words believable to others. On the flip side, Christians doing poor work is one of the greatest obstacles for the proclamation of the gospel message I know today. One of the things that just brings tears to my eyes is when I hear comments, and they may be overstated, I don't know, but 
often hear comments like, I wouldn't hire a Christian, they're the worst workers around. And I have shared with you out of therapy some of the issues with our house over the years. And uh, I've had more than one workman come on an occasion when they walk, look at the shoddy work, they, they mention the name of the builder in Kansas City who built that house. And that builder is known in this community as being a Christian. And they said it in a derisive way. The work we do matters. And often the work we do hinders our ability to be persuasive in the gospel message. Paul's focus here in Acts 20, notice his logical flow of thought, is that our work diligence makes possible the economic capacity, which makes possible the unleashing of economic generosity. Do you see the logic? Paul says first, watch your heart, everybody. doesn't matter how much you have. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. Secondly, work hard in your work. And third, live generously. Notice verse 35, Paul quotes Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want you to notice in context what precedes this. Do you see it? That Jesus, Paul is quoting Jesus in the context of strong advocacy for the economically vulnerable. Do you see it? In fact, he uses a Greek word that is translated to English weak. And this context is not physical weakness or emotional weakness. It can be used that way. It is economic vulnerability. This is most on Paul's mind as his last words. Wow. Not only those who are economically vulnerable within that house church then at Ephesus, but the community as a whole. We heard about the quartet, right? The widow, orphan, the migrant, the refugee, the poor. See, living generously means not only being an advocate for the vulnerable, but being wise with our generosity. Because without wisdom, generosity can actually hurt others more than help them. Good intentions are not enough. Wisdom is essential. Bob Lupton, who's done a lot of work on philanthropy, and the dangers of philanthropy not done well, has a new book out called Charity Detox. Don't you love that name? The subtitle is, What Charity Would Look Like If We Cared About Results. And this is what he says. This is very provocative. Just a head thought. But obviously, I think he's right. My opinion. The only thing that moves a person out of poverty is a job. So the next question, that's it, he says, so the next question we need to ask is, are we facilitating the creation of jobs that enable people to move out of poverty? The answer is, and again, here's the guy who's all across the country looking, no, we're not. Now notice what he says. And it's because we are taking the wrong people on mission trips. Rather than taking servers, we need to take job creators and business people. Instead of taking mission trips, we need to take investment trips. See, helping the economically vulnerable without hurting them requires not just a handout, but providing the means for economic opportunity. And it means having a local church focus. Keep in mind, Paul is speaking primarily to church leadership of a local church, not individuals. Isn't it interesting that Paul, after this, he prays. He gets on his knees and he prays. Can I ask you to contemplate this week? What does Paul pray for? What do you think? I'll let you think about that.
We must not miss the local church as God designed it is the ultimate good neighbor. Now, what stuns me across the nation and where I go, and people, it's, it stuns me that it is not theologians and pastors who are ringing this bell today. It is economists. Yale-trained Brian Fickert was with us, and he said these words at CG 2015. He says, the greatest asset in any community is what? It's the church that is already there. Brian Fickert, Yale-trained. Raj Chetty. Harvard economist getting increasing play across the country. In his research on the lack of economic opportunity and mobility in much of our nation, he looks to two main contributors. I have no idea what his, what his worldview is, just as an economist. He says the two main contributors to the lack of human flourishing in our nation are twofold, bad neighborhoods and bad schools. And he offers three solutions. Can you believe this? Raj Chetty, Harvard professor, advocates three things. One, wise government policy. Secondly, two-parent families. And third, quote, neighborhood churches. This week I was in Atlanta and I heard a presentation by University of Virginia sociologist Dr. Brad Wilcox. He's devoted his whole academic life to making the connection of marriage and economic productivity and stable family life. Dr. Wilcox, after he I mean, shared his compelling research, looked at us and he said, where is the church? The church must stand up and promote virtue. It must promote stable marriage and help nourish economic opportunity in our cultural moment. Do we grasp the importance of the local church in our world? Do we grasp it? The local church is plan A. I do not see plan B anywhere. And while other organizations are important and should be supported and can come alongside the church, they will never replace the local church. God designed the local church to do uniquely what it only can do in the world. The local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. Paul knew it. Much of Christian history, Christians knew it. How is it that we are so missing it? The local church is a people in place where the gospel is incarnated, where the gospel is proclaimed, where spiritual formation occurs, where human character development and human capital development are bursting forth for the world. It is an incubator of leadership for the world. Along with the family, the local church and the family are God's means to flourish a nation and a world. Local church is a vital force for human flourishing in a city. When a local church flourishes, communities flourish and cultures flourish. So how are we contributing to the flourishing of the local church? Our primary generosity and our primary sense of mission, friends, is to be seen not merely through individual lens of preference, but collective lens of local church institutional life. This is one of the reasons why we plant neighborhood campuses and churches. This is also another reason why our church has launched the Made to Flourish Network nationally, designed to encourage pastors to become increasingly spiritually whole and more effective in their vocational mission because flourishing pastors influence flourishing congregations that influence flourishing communities. 
The church is called the bride of Christ for a reason, is it not? There's no other bride in Scripture I can find. And as a bridegroom, Jesus cherishes his bride more than anything else. Loving Jesus means cherishing his church. And the primary thrust of the New Testament is local churches. See, what we love, we praise. What we pray for, what we serve, what we generously support is what we truly love. God designed the primary conduit of our generosity to be the local church. I say that not in any way because I want anything from you, but what I want for you. We spend so much time at Christ when we talk about pressing into God's design in all of life, art and human sexuality, all of life. But part of pressing to God's design is his design for generosity. To increasingly live into God's design for human flourishing, we experience the joy of Christ honoring giving. The greatest joy in life is really not about getting, Paul says, but giving. Neighborly love is a generous love. So what does your neighbor need? First, they need a relationship with you. They need your compassionate heart, not judgmental one. They need your hardworking hands that gives you economic capacity to love. And they need your wise generosity. So as we wrap up this series, let me ask three questions, a reflection I'm asking myself. Are we growing in neighborly love? First, are you growing in Christ-like character? Have you experienced the conversion of your heart to Jesus Christ and the conversion of your pocketbook? Both of those are important. Are you growing in generosity in all dimensions of life? See, a life of gratitude and generosity is one of the best indicators, the best barometers of a maturing, vibrant Christian faith. See, a vibrant economy and a virtuous people go hand in hand. Second question, how are you growing in economic capacity? See, our capacity for economic generosity, again, there are many kinds of generosity, but our capacity for economic generosity is often less about what we make and more about what we spend. Let me ask you, how much do you spend of what you make? See, financial generosity requires living below your means, unleashing financial margin in your life, finding contentment, not in having more but in giving more. The tendency for all of us, regardless of our income, is lifestyle creep. The more financial resources we are entrusted with by God, often the higher standard of living we often live. And I am not saying, hear me carefully, that increased standards of living is inherently bad. The Bible speaks with robustness both of the joy of celebration of God's blessing and sacrifice. They're both there. But I'm saying that an increasing lifestyle should be bathed in prayer and in counsel with others. And I want to make a challenge to you. It's not the Bible or what the Lord says, but I think the time in which we live calls for this, for more Christians. Instead of increasing our lifestyle, would you prayerfully, would I prayerfully consider investing more in entrepreneurial businesses and philanthropic enterprises than just increasing our lifestyle? Many of us want to be more generous. I believe that. We were created that way. But our ability to be generous is limited because many of us live financially upside down. What do, I mean? what do I mean by that? Many of us spend first, we save second, and we give third. 
But if we were to live financially right side up as God designed, we would give first, save second, and spend third. So parents, what do your children see in your home? Economics is learned more in the home often than any other place, basic economics. One of the greatest ways to teach right side living to your kids is to give them an allowance and give them three envelopes. We did this with our kids. And in one envelope, the first envelope, number one, is giving. Cash goes in that envelope to give, to be generous to others. The second one is to save for the future, college or whatever. And the third is to spend. I had the joy of being on an interview with Ron Blue this week. Ron Blue and Judy wrote a book, a wonderful book several years ago. Ron has a group out of Atlanta. And uh, this book is a really fine little book. It's called Raising Money Smart Kids. It is an outstanding guide for you, but what stands out to me when I perused it again, I'd read it many years ago, is it really could be called Raising Money Smart Adults. Because there's so much we learn. We never outgrow the need for greater economic wisdom. None of us do. Third, how are you growing in wise generosity? Christ's community is a very generous people. I brag on it. I am grateful for you. But I don't think God's done with us yet. I think he wants to encourage this church and each one of us here to greater generosity, greater contentment, greater joy, and greater happiness. Proverbs 3 reminds us of a timeless principle, right? That we are to honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. That's both wealth and income to God. The Old Testament gives us a guideline of what that looks like. What is first fruit giving? In the Old Testament, it was a tithe. It was 10%. The New Testament doesn't dismiss that. It builds upon it in gracious giving beyond it. Not legalistically, but out of grace and gratitude. The New Testament takes us farther than 10%. Many of us would be wise and God-honoring to start there or move to that direction. Now, the Bible also teaches with clarity that our primary giving I didn't say exclusive giving. I said our primary giving is to be focused on what the Bible calls both Old and New Testament, the household of God. Paul clearly, clearly says in 1 Timothy 3, the household of God is the church. I'm not saying this in a self-serving way, but in a way of desiring to honor God and honor God's design in all of life, including giving and Scripture. I had a conversation a while back with someone who was talking about the challenge of philanthropic giving. This person said to me, Tom, if I gave to the church and he listed a very large amount of money, what on earth would the church do with it? And I responded with a smile, I think, because we're friends. And I said, the problem is not the size of your gift, it's the size of your imagination of what the local church is and its mission in the world. See, it's not just that our God is too small. Our vision of the church is way too small in its place in the world. Neighborly love is a generous love. And the gospel is rooted in the greatest expression of generosity that God would send his only son into the world for you and me. Neighborly love is a generous love. At the heart of loving our neighbor is sharing the good news about Jesus with them. 
we must not forget the greatest need your neighbor has is a spiritual need, both temporally and eternally. The need for forgiveness and a new life in Jesus Christ that he makes possible. So let's share the good news. And let's make Jesus known through our work. But let's make him known through our words. Neighborly love is a generous love. It is a lifestyle of giving ourselves completely to God and to others. Watch this. A year before I retired from the FBI, I made a conscious decision to, uh, upon retirement, to do mentoring. And during my last few years in New York, that's what I did, mentoring with 100 black men of New York. I saw the need here coming to Kansas City. You know, we can all attest to the challenges that the Kansas City Public School has in providing that leadership to the, to the younger generation. My name is Jerry Rose. I've been a member of Christ Community for a little over a year now. We started a nonprofit organization called Look Up. And what Look Up is all about is mentoring students within the Kansas City Public School District especially uh, four signature schools. We're starting with seventh graders. Our plan is to mentor these young people from seventh grade on throughout their academic life in high school and to follow them throughout their college or professional careers. Establishing a network of people that will eventually contribute and become leaders here in Kansas City. I went to New York as a senior executive in the FBI, and my goal at the time that I arrived in New York in 2006 was to work a few years in New York and um, retire and get that big corporate security job. So I laid out my plan for myself to God and for his support and, and blessing, and uh, simply God said, no, I want you to go back and uh, you've talked about it to me all your life, Jerry, that you wanted to mentor and make a change. Well, I'm giving you this opportunity and I want you to go do my will. And here I am in Kansas City. My faith has been one of a struggle and constant questioning, questioning God's role, God's will for me. I'm at peace now with that. And I have that confidence, God-given confidence, to go out and, and do His will. I believe that. There's a culture out there, it's a negative culture, and uh, I want to change that. So that's what I'm devoting my life to.